Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gil Halstead, a former member of the Wisconsin Education Association Council and United Faculty and Staff. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, and I'm Sandy Park. I'm a retiree from both the American Federation of Teachers and AFSCME. This week, we catch up with labor issues in Madison, celebrate an organizing victory in Mexico, discuss the push for worker input on COVID policy and at the UW, and take a look at reform at the USPS, share the latest COVID report, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Madison Labor is on the move this week. Frank Emspach has the story. UE Local 1186, representing workers at the Willie Street Co-op, kicked off negotiations for a new contract. While the co-op did agree to meet with the union's bargaining team at the Labor Temple, when the time came, the co-op declined to participate in face-to-face meetings due to COVID. Negotiations are scheduled through February 24th. Labor Radio will keep you informed as talks proceed. The contract expires on March 22nd. The union is seeking an across-the-board wage increase, improved time-off policies, improvements in the medical benefits, and is also very concerned with staffing levels. Meanwhile, UW nurses are also on the move. Nurses are calling upon community members, nurses, and elected officials to join an informational picket for safe staffing, quality care, and the union on Thursday, February 24th at 6 p.m. The informational picket will be across the street from the University Bay Drive UW Health's emergency room entrance. Finally, as listeners may recall, the City of Madison is seeking to remove several union members from the bargaining unit at Madison Metro. Teamsters Local 695 has filed an appeal with the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission. A hearing is scheduled for March 23rd. Next, with UW administration avoiding discussion with its unions on the issues of COVID safety, a member of UW-Madison's graduate student union tells us about their attempt to get involved with the university's official COVID response team. Two weeks ago, Labor Radio reported on a January 24th action at the office of UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank when university unions and the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Coalition, or the BIPOC Coalition, presented a list of demands to rectify what they said was an inadequate response to student and worker safety regarding the ongoing COVID pandemic. Protesters insisted that the university had had no direct involvement with their groups in crafting its response. Jack Phillips is the chair of the Political Education Committee of the Teaching Assistance Association, or the TAA, the union representing graduate student workers at UW-Madison, and is in the Biomedical Engineering Department at the university. They took part in the action on the 24th, and they recount what they were told about avenues of involvement in the university's COVID response. 
On January 24th, you saw and recorded a conversation between a bunch of GAA and ASM folks and BIPOC coalition folks and three administrators. And in that conversation, I asked how one joins the supposed COVID committee, the, the committee that makes a bunch of forms decisions. So Phillips went ahead and joined the committee that they had been directed toward. The ASM Student Council opened up for a spot, which he told to us, a group of graduate workers at UW-Madison. On the 26th, the next ASM meeting, I put myself forward for this committee, for one of the four open spots. I was confirmed by ASM, the due process, everything that, that goes into that student government. In the meantime, the university administration responded to the list of demands that the university unions and the BIPOC coalition had submitted at the Monday action. The administration addressed the response only to the TAA and not other unions or the BIPOC coalition. Here is Phillips. That Friday, the 28th, the administration gave us a written reply to the letter, as they said they would. It said mostly nothing. And I replied to that email that that was insufficient. It didn't address any of the scientific points that I had brought up, any of the concerns that I have as someone who knows how to read and interpret biological data. I mentioned in that email that I had been appointed to this COVID committee and that I looked forward to working with them. But then Philip said they got a surprise. I sent that email at 3.58 p.m. At 4.10 p.m., according to the metadata of this position description that got sent to the Shared Governance Committee chair, 12 minutes later, at 4.10 p.m., the Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs created a document outlining the qualifications for this committee and explicitly said that it is an undergraduate committee only and mentioned that there is a separate committee for grad students, which was not communicated to the group of grad students in the office there. At the time of this interview, Phillips said they had received no further word on this separate graduate committee. According to a communication from Phillips received by us shortly before airtime here, they received a response from the university administration saying that COVID matters are discussed with the Graduate School Dean's Advisory Board, a body which predates the pandemic. Phillips expressed curiosity about the history and function of the COVID committee. It's also strange because to my knowledge, most shared governance committees at UW either have reserved grad seats or are open to grads and undergrads. My understanding was that there weren't particularly many undergrad-only shared gov committees, especially for an issue as large as the global pandemic that has ground our society to a halt and continues to kill thousands of people on a daily basis. So while for now cut out of the university's own preferred shared governance system, Phillips has continued to keep tabs on COVID data from Public Health Dane County and from what is available from the university. They described what they found. The PHNDC data suggests that the caseload is in fact trending down. Hospitalizations are kicking down slowly. That's good. I'm really hoping that this means that for the first time in all this advocacy that I might have been wrong in one of my predictions, but it is important to note that they have entirely changed how they're collecting this data. Phillips described their worries over possible gaps in the current data collection procedure. Primary thrust of the testing initiative right now is through these antigen home, home tests. And the policy that they're following is that only antigen tests conducted in the clinical setting are recorded. Right now, there's a high prevalence of COVID in Dane County and on campus. There isn't really any sort of requirement or even a stated responsibility to report positive results through the campus available antigen tests. So we've stepped down the data collection effort is the long and short of that. That was Jack Phillips of the TAA and UW-Madison's Department of Biomedical Engineering. To Phillips' knowledge, beyond the response to the unions and the BIPOC coalition demands mentioned here, there has been no further direct contact over COVID policy between their union and the university. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky.
Next, we'll hear an update on the federal contract awarded to Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense to construct a new fleet of USPS vehicles. Oshkosh Defense, a Wisconsin-based specialty automotive company, was at the center of a tense exchange between Wisconsin's two United States senators this week, bringing back under public scrutiny a multi-billion dollar federal contract awarded to the firm last February. Under the contract, the company would produce a replacement fleet of 165,000 vehicles for the United States Postal Service. Oshkosh Defense announced the decision that it would be producing the fleet of vehicles in Spartanburg, South Carolina last June. Senator Ron Johnson, a member of the Republican Party and elected official based out of Oshkosh, told reporters Saturday that he would not want to, quote, insert myself to demand that anything be manufactured here using federal funds in Wisconsin saying that it's more important for federal dollars to be spent efficiently. He also downplayed the importance of adding jobs to Wisconsin's economy. Quote, it's not like we don't have enough jobs here in Wisconsin, Johnson said. Quote, the biggest problem we have in Wisconsin right now is employers not being able to find enough workers. Johnson has received pushback for his remarks from his Wisconsin colleague, Senator Tammy Baldwin, who says she wants those trucks built locally. Quote, we want to look closely at the contract, which was based on an assumption that there would be use of existing facilities for production of these trucks, she added. Oshkosh defense workers in South Carolina are non-union. Baldwin accused Oshkosh defense of shifting work down south to avoid hiring Wisconsin's union workers, many of whom are also speaking out. Quote, we're Wisconsinites. We expect a company that's named after our hometown would have the decency to keep jobs here, said Tim Jacobson. Chief Steward of UAW Local 578 in Oshkosh to reporters for WBAY News. Jacobson, a member of the union's leadership team, added, quote, we've already felt the pain of outsourcing to other countries. Now we're fighting against having our jobs outsourced to another state. I don't want to move my family to South Carolina, and I know my colleagues don't want to either. The USPS contract has also come under fire in recent days as the Biden administration has threatened to halt the contract because only about 10% of the vehicles are planned to be electric. The federal contract is also the subject of a lawsuit filed by a rival company, alleging that it was improperly awarded. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. President Biden made good on his pledge to build back America better with union labor. Labor Radio brings you this report. On February 4th, President Biden signed a remarkable executive order mandating project labor agreements for federal construction projects valued at $35 million or more. The order instructs federal agencies to require every contractor or subcontractor engaged in construction projects valued at $35 million or more to agree for that project to negotiate or become a party to a project labor agreement with one or more appropriate labor organizations. 
What makes this executive order different from similar orders in the other administrations is that this order mandates the use of project labor agreements. Project labor agreements are collective bargaining agreements between building trades unions and contractors. They govern the terms and conditions of employment for all craft workers, union and non-union, on a construction project. This order binds all contractors and subcontractors on the construction project. It does allow contractors and subcontracts to compete for contracts even if they are not unionized, but they must agree to the terms of these agreements. The PLAs also contain guarantees against strikes, lockouts, and similar job disruptions. They set forth effective, prompt, and mutually binding procedures for resolving labor disputes arising during the term of the project labor agreement. PLAs also provide for other mechanisms of labor management cooperation on matters of mutual interest and concern, such as productivity, quality of work, safety, and health. North America's Building Trades Unions, President Sean McGarvey, issued the following statement in support of the White House executive order. Quote, Today's announcement is welcome news for all workers, union and non-union. Project labor agreements address supply issues, secure workers' classification, set good wages, promote strong health and safety, and ensure that large-scale projects are completed on time with the highest degree of quality, efficiency, and safety." End quote. Observers note that one of the benefits of such agreements is the strengthening of apprenticeship programs. The stability inherent in these agreements encourages workforce development, that is, development and increase in apprenticeship programs. Most PLAs also have pre-apprenticeship requirements, thus providing thousands of women, people of color, and veterans access to construction career pathways. Such programs will be of particular value here in Wisconsin. The impact of PLA agreements in Wisconsin will be clear once the infrastructure investment projects targeted in the various Biden economic stimulus proposals are implemented. I'm Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. The Postal Service Reform Bill passed in the House on Tuesday of this week, February 8th. The bill still must be passed by the Senate before being signed into law by President Biden. The Senate is expected to act on the bill next week. On Tuesday, in a 342 to 92 vote, the House of Representatives passed the Postal Service Reform Act of 2022, H.R. 3076. National Association of Letter Carriers President Frederick Orlando called the passage a huge victory for the American people, who rely on the Postal Service for affordable and high-quality universal service. The bipartisan bill includes key measures to strengthen the Postal Service, with provisions that eliminate the mandate on the Postal Service to prefund its retiree health care benefits decades in advance. The 2006 Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act's pre-funding mandate exhausted the Postal Service's borrowing authority, hampering investments in its networks and infrastructure. The mandate has cost an average of $5.2 billion annually since 2007 and is responsible for 84% of USPS losses over that period. The pre-funding mandate accounted for 100% of losses from 2013 to 2018, disguising what otherwise would have been net profits. Without this unique burden, the USPS would have recorded surpluses of nearly $4 billion in that period. Six-day mail delivery will become a statutory requirement under the Postal Reform Act and no longer require annual renewal. 
The Postal Service is actually delivering mail seven days a week, primarily due to parcel volume. The legislation also includes provisions to reduce postal health care costs by maximizing participation in Medicare. Only 80% of postal retirees currently enroll in Medicare at age 65. For those that enroll, Medicare will be the primary payer of health care costs and thereby lower costs for the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program. The legislation includes additional reporting and review requirements. It has the support of the four postal unions, the mailing industry, and postal service management. The NALC President Rolando said, With House passage, we are one step closer to dramatically improving the financial stability of the Postal Service. We call on the Senate to debate and pass H.R. 3076 as soon as possible, and then to send it to President Biden for his signature. I want to congratulate and thank all the NALC members who lobbied their members of Congress to win House passage and urge them to help finish the job by contacting their senators to urge them to vote for H.R. 3076, unquote. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. And now, here is Carol Weidel with this week's COVID report. Is COVID endemic yet? Public Health Madison in Dane County addressed this question with this response. When we reach an endemic state, we'll see COVID cases stabilize, but it will not always be stable. There can be still severe outbreaks and waves of infections. For example, seasonal influenza could be called endemic because it's stable most of the year, but then there is usually a large surge during the winter months. People hope that COVID evolves to be less deadly, but that isn't always the case. Diseases can be endemic, but also cause a lot of disease and severe outcomes, like malaria and tuberculosis. Endemic is about the stability of the cases, not the severity. At today's briefing from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, Dr. Bill Moss spoke about the best case and worst case scenarios for the spread of the virus. So I think in the best case scenario, we're going to, we'll continue to see case counts decline and see declines in hospitalizations and deaths. That's a lagging indicator, but but we're going to continue to see new variants of this virus. But in the best case scenario, those new variants, this virus is going to mutate, will not escape the immunity that we've built up through vaccination and through infection. What if the current drop in the spread of infections is reversed? Worst case scenario, we have a new variant that's highly transmissible, escapes immunity, perhaps causes a more severe disease. And then I think it's going to really come down to what do we tolerate as a society? You know, we cannot uh, have a situation where our hospitals are overcrowded, our ICUs are overcrowded, thousands of deaths a day. I, I always kind of remind myself that just under 3,000 people died in 9-11, and we are tolerating 2,000, 2,500 deaths per day over the past several months. And so Uh, We have more people die in two days than died uh, in 9-11. Some states are lifting mask mandates. California is allowing its indoor mask mandate to expire February 15th. In Connecticut, the mask edict covering students and staff in the state schools will be lifted no later than February 28th, according to the governor. In Delaware, the state's masking rule for businesses and workplaces expires on February 11th. These are just a few states that are dropping mask mandates. Dr. Brian Garibaldi described the risks of lifting these mask mandates. You know, I know there's going to be a lot of interest this week in in terms of mask mandates. You know, I think it's great that we're able to have this discussion right now and start talking about when would be the appropriate time to lift these mask mandates in some places. I'm a little worried that we've seen this movie before. 
um, and that we might be moving a little bit quickly in terms of relaxing some of those mitigation efforts in response to the you know the thankful decrease in, in community transmission but you know we're still in the middle of winter people are gathering indoors frequently and so i think removing some of those mass mandates makes me a little bit nervous i think we might be a little bit too early to be doing that especially when you look at the number of individuals in our country who are eligible to be vaccinated but still haven't been vaccinated in dane county cases decreased during this 14-day period ending sunday january 6 with an average of 569 cases per day the number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals also decreased with an average of 132 people hospitalized each day. Percent positivity was 13% and an average of 4,477 tests were conducted each day. While the percent positivity is decreasing week by week, it is still elevated. A high percent positivity means that we are still likely missing cases in our case counts. If you need a test, same-day appointments are often available at the Alliant Energy Center. Visit the Public Health Madison and Dane County testing page to make an appointment and pre-register. You can find it at publichealthmdc.com slash coronavirus slash testing. When should people stay at home when exposed to COVID? The Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, recommends the following for calculating how long to stay at home for people who are not yet vaccinated. The date of exposure is considered day zero. Day one is the first day after the last contact with a person who has had COVID. Stay home and away from other people for at least five days. Wear a well-fitting mask if you must be around others in your home people who are up to date on their vaccines do not need to stay home unless they develop symptoms. Sources of information for today's story are the Centers for Disease Control, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, Public Health Madison and Dane County, and the New York Times. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Have you ever wondered how much wage workers who depend on tips really make? Frank Frank Emspach has the story. You are going out for a Valentine's dinner? Be aware that some of the servers are being paid a sub-minimum wage. Your tip goes to bring those workers up to the level of $7.25 an hour. In other words, your tip is subsidizing the employer. Then, if the tip pool is large enough, the workers will get something. This system dates from 1966, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was amended to include hotel, restaurant, and other service workers but also introduced a no subminimum wage, originally set at $2.13 per hour. The theory was that the combination of tips and the subminimum wage would add up to the federal minimum wage, currently $7.25 an hour. As the Economic Policy Institute put it, quote, whereas tips had once been simply a token of gratitude from the serve to the server, they became, at least in part, a subsidy from consumers to the employers of tipped workers. In other words, part of the employer wage bill is now being paid by the customers via their tips, end quote. Uh, But we're all subsidizing the employer, as EPI pointed out. Due to their low wages and higher poverty levels, about 46% of tipped workers and their families rely on public benefits, compared to 35.5% of non-tipped workers and their families. Individual states can raise the subminimum wage, and 19 states have done so and have set the federal minimum wage or more as the new subminimum. 
Wisconsin raised the subminimum wage as well, from $2.13 an hour to $2.33 per hour. Listeners should be aware that in real terms, both the subminimum and the minimum wage are lower today than in 1996. Thanks to the Economic Policy Institute for the information contained in this report. Workers at a General Motors plant in central Mexico have won the representation of an independent union after voting out their company union last year. Labor Radio Sean Hagerup has more on this victory. Workers at a General Motors plant in Salau, Mexico have voted to be represented by CINTIA, or the National Independent Union for Workers in the Auto Industry, as a result of an election held from February 1st to February 2nd. It is a landmark victory for organizers and activists who have long worked to weaken the vice grip of the employer-friendly unions that have dominated the Mexican labor movement. Cintia grew out of the successful campaign to invalidate a contract negotiated by a company-friendly union last August. The previous union was associated with the country's largest union federation, the Congress of Mexican Labor, or CTM for short. Cintia, which ran on a platform promising to raise wages and fight for workers on the shop floor, competed with three other organizations to win representation of GM employees, including another CTM-affiliated union. Approximately 6,300 workers were eligible to vote in last week's election. In all, turnout was 88% among those eligible participants. Cintia received over 4,100 votes, an overwhelming 78% of the participating electorate. The remainder of the vote was split among the three other competing unions, one of which only received 18 votes. Workers at the Salau plant make the lucrative Chevy Silverado and GMC Sierra pickups, but earn less than $25 for a 12-hour shift. Foremost on their minds is a wage increase. Quote, what workers would like most is to have a decent salary that is enough for, for their day-to-day needs, said Alejandra Morales, Cintia's principal officer who has worked at the plant for 11 years in the paint department. Among the other demands that Cintia highlighted in its election campaign were bathroom breaks, improved benefits, food and transportation paid for by the company, and better ability to take vacation time. Once the results are certified by Mexican labor authorities, Cintia will enter negotiations with GM. Earlier this week, the automaker reported that it had pulled in a record $10 billion in profits last year. Under current Mexican labor law, Cynthia has six months to negotiate a contract with the company and have it approved by a majority of the workers. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. And now for some announcements. The South Central Federation of Labor will award four scholarships of $1,000 each to eligible applicants. The deadline for applications is Friday, June 24th. Applicants must live or work in South Central Wisconsin and be members of children or members of any union affiliated with the South Central Federation of Labor. Two additional scholarships of $500 will be awarded to applicants who live and work in Dodge County. To apply, fill out the application form on the South Central Federation of Labor's website at scfl.org. The winners will be determined by lottery drawing. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Gil Halstead. Thanks to editors Frank Emspach, Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough. 
Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Widell, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to website editor J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Sandy Park. We also want to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Now please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. <laughs>